A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, starting with verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the, he- of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, starting with verse 16. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I have become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. (laughs) To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. The word of the Lord. The Gospel according to St. Mark. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. 
So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Jessica, the deacon here, if you don't know me, or Reverend Jessica, as uh, Father Preston always puts it in the, in the program. I like that. Rev. Um, thank you, Abby, for leading us in music this morning. I always love it when you get to do that. Yeah, I wanted to start with that prayer of the church for today. I'm just going to repeat part of it. It says, set us free, O God, from the bondage of our sins and give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in the Son, in your Son, our Savior. So the collect today is just a proclamation of the gospel. It's succinct and brief and simple. It's bondage versus liberty, and it's sin versus abundant life. Proclaiming the gospel uh, can sometimes be a loaded idea for me, though. Um, I... I struggle with lots of questions about that, like who, who gets to proclaim it? When is, when is it appropriate to proclaim these things? Um, is it really like that cliche that says something about like preach at all times, use words when necessary? I, I don't know who said that, but you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, do we really actually just need to like preach on a street corner with megaphones? Is that necessary? Is it really that simple? And if we are presenting a choice between freedom and bondage, it does seem that simple. So we are to be evangelists, proclaimers of the gospel. Like Paul says, it's our obligation. So why do, why do I seem to struggle with that concept? And the, the term evangelist kind of leaves like a bad taste in my mouth sometimes. Um, even when I'm standing here, like preaching at a pulpit with a microphone and a live stream, uh, I still, it seems silly that I have a hard time thinking of myself that way. Um, I know the term evangelical can feel loaded for a lot of reasons nowadays. Um, and I, I really hate that so many people are justifiably abandoning that term because it has become more associated with other things in our culture, just more of maybe a voting block or a cultural group than a group of people who are supposed to be following Jesus and living as signposts to him and his kingdom. Um, but as we deal with all that baggage, I have to also examine my own uh, backlash against that idea and examine what good could I be missing out on um, in that word, evangelism, evangelical, in my own rebellion against that kind of current mess going on. So another strong association I have with that word is from my college days. Um, I went to college in Knoxville. I did not go to UT. I went to um, a tiny, beautiful campus called Johnson Bible College and I had a really fun time there. I played volleyball all four years. Um, and our mascot was the Evangels. <laughs> that was our sports mascot. But that was just the, the volleyball team. The men's teams were all called the Preachers. But of course, ladies can't be preachers. <laughs> so we were the Evangels. Um, and a side note, for some reason, the soccer team was the Spirits because they were co-ed. Like, there were a couple girls that played on the soccer team. So they got to be the Spirits. 
So a lot of different <laughs> weird mascots going on there. Um, I don't really understand why. Uh, so maybe that's really like I'm also at the root of my allergy to like evangelizing. Um, it was also really silly to me that like that was the idea of like we were supposed to be evangelists when we were only playing other like super conservative tiny colleges. <laughs> like where are we supposed to evangelize to them? I don't know. Uh, but anyways, now, that was, you know, 20 years ago, now uh, Johnson is a university, and they changed all the sports teams to royals across the board, so equality for the sports team mascots, I guess, um, and they also put women through their preaching program. My good friend Rachel is the campus minister. She's a lady, so uh, they've progressed a little bit, I think. Um, so as I'm interrogating those, my own ideas about evangelism, which is a good thing, and proclaiming the gospel, which is something that I want to do, what's really helping me is just looking at who is doing that in the scripture and when. Um, it turns out it's a, it's a lot of different beings, not just people. It's God, it's fiery prophets and priests, it's the nation of Israel itself, it's all these individuals within the nation that are flawed and even people who come as outsiders, not Israelites. Um, then it's in the New Testament, it's apostles, it's deacons, it's angels, even demons proclaim who Jesus is. So going back to our Isaiah passage, the prophet is proclaiming a new era of hope after exile for the Israelites. Um, the exile was a judgment for them for, as a nation that they had just repeatedly lost their way and were chasing after idols and foreign gods and all that. But now the exile is over. So they can return home and God's kingdom is coming. So Isaiah's message is changing to this message of hope and comfort. And God is speaking comfort to his people. But the people are still making accusations against him. Um, in verse 27... It says, O oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? O oh, Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? This is typical Israel. They tend to be complainers. It's also typical me. Um, we get this like chronic tunnel vision as humans that we, we just can't focus on anything but our own troubles. You know, God hasn't fixed this trouble for me. Therefore, he must be ignoring me. This is the feelings that the nation is having um, in their complaints against God. Or worse, we must think that he doesn't even see me or he doesn't even know about my troubles. And of course, if, if it's a God that weak and ignorant of me and my life, he's not worth having faith in. And that's the moment that a little bit of faith and hope is lost, just a little bit at a time instead of more hope building. But then God says all this awesome stuff to kind of snap Israel out of that self-centered hopelessness they're feeling. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depth of his understanding. I love how just absolutely smug this would be coming from anyone but God. Um, but from God, he's just 
He's just speaking completely self-evidently. He knows they have heard it because he's the one who has been telling them and showing them and saving them from bondage for generations. It should be very self-evident that he is extremely involved in their troubles and their rights. That's kind of his whole thing. In fact, the rest of Isaiah is a whole story of how God created and formed and rescued these people uh, and brought low their oppressors in his justice against Babylon. Um, and then Isaiah also projects this story of God and his people into far into the future in a way that they probably don't understand. But now that we know the whole, well, a lot more of the story, um, he's projecting into the future about the good news of the gospel, that God is going to send a servant to save them ultimately. Um, and it's the same servant Christ that we read about in the four gospels. So all along, the creator God is right there, and he's measuring oceans and distances between the stars with his hands, and he's saying to us, have you never understood? So what we then have to proclaim is that God has already proclaimed all this good news. He's done it in Jesus. He has already revealed the story of who he is and how he has loved and pursued us from the beginning. It's all been revealed in Jesus and being revealed right now, whether we have understood it or not. So that brings us to the epistle reading in 1 Corinthians that Elsie read. Thank you, Elsie, for saying under the law like 45 times. <laughs> um, so Paul says that he is obligated to proclaim this gospel. It's not bringing him glory to proclaim it. Uh, it would bring him woes if he did not. The gospel he preaches, he calls free of charge. He is arguing against taking any actual payment from the Corinthian church as a, as a pastor to them, a minister to them. So th there's lots of cultural things going on here and lots of other experts that could really speak better about this argument that Paul is making and what it means for the church today about pastors and payments and all that. But what I think one thing this means to me is that the gospel is not just for the proud and privileged. He's not trying to bring it to a group of powerful people or leaders who can give him power or money and a platform in return. Our calculations today assume that this is foolishness. Wouldn't it be nice for Paul to like buddy up with some of these powerful Romans and get them to stop persecuting the Christians and start privileging the Christians instead? So sure, Paul would have to make some trade-offs for that, take some earthly rewards, but that's just a means to an end, right? That story never really works out for the church, but we keep trying it over and over through history. It's just not the game our God is playing. So then, how do we see Jesus proclaim the gospel in Mark, in the gospel reading? He proclaims healing from sickness and freedom from demons. There are so many interesting things that happen in this short snapshot that I just completely missed the first couple times upon reading. Um, but the first thing he does, he's, he's brought into uh, the house of his friends, Simon and Andrew, and he heals Simon's family member. He heals his mother-in-law just by taking her hand. Um, I learned a couple things about this little moment. 
and the significance of this in his culture, in the, in the Jewish culture of that time, it was really scandalous for Jesus to touch a woman that he wasn't related to. So first of all, he's touching a woman. He's also touching a sick person, which is like unclean. You're not supposed to touch a sick person. Um, and he's also doing it on the Sabbath, which he you know, often gets in trouble for doing things on the Sabbath. But Mark makes sure that we know that detail, that he didn't just heal her. He healed her by holding her hand in this really loving way as a loving rabbi to her. I also learned that when the text says she immediately got up and began to wait on them or serve them, um, it's not just saying like she had to go get drinks and snacks for the men folk right away, <laughs> um, which can kind of irk our modern ears. Uh, when it's speaking about her serving Jesus, it's actually using the word diakonos. I'm probably saying that wrong in Greek, but um, it does mean serving. That word means serving. But in the Christian community, it had a really special meaning. Uh, it referred to the same kind of service we talk about when we talk about deacons, the holy order of deacons. Um, that's diakonos. So early in the, earlier in chapter 1, Mark also used the same words to talk about the angels, the angels who ministered to Jesus after he was uh, tempted in the desert in the wilderness. They are also serving him the same way. So it's really um, just a special way of saying that she was being a servant of Jesus, not in like a masterful kind of way, but just in a humble way. She was loved by him and healed by him and immediately got to serve him. Uh, so kind of maybe self-indulgent for me, just thinking like, oh, maybe Simon's mother-in-law was the first like deacon in the Bible that was mentioned like me. Um, so then things get even more interesting, right? After she's healed, the disciples start bringing more and more people for him to heal. The whole city was gathered at their door. So this is what, like, you can read this and just kind of brush by it, but then stop and go, like, the whole city came to their door. And I just imagine this scene. Like, everyone is dragging their sick loved ones out of bed, out into the dark of the night to see this Jesus. And they're also bringing the demon possessed of the city. So maybe some of them hadn't been in their right minds for years, or maybe they were just living in these really unsavory places, and the townspeople had to find them and bring them to Jesus and proclaim to them that someone had come for them, someone had come that could heal them and free them. And he did heal them. Uh, but then he does some strange things. He does not permit the demons to speak because they also know him and can proclaim him. Maybe he just doesn't want their demon friends to find out he is coming for them. I don't, I don't know. Um, for whatever reason, this is one of those many times in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't want to be fully known right away. He does have this great spectacle, though, of this all-night healing marathon. He just, they make it sound like he heals everyone that came. And then he withdraws. He goes off by himself and prays. People often point out that even Jesus needed to recharge during his time of ministry on earth by regularly spending time in prayer to the Father by himself, prayer alone. Uh, I think this is absolutely true and something we have to learn to emulate as Christians. Henry Nouwen writes, without solitude, 
It is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. Solitude begins with a time and place for God and him alone. If we really believe not only that God exists, but also that he is actively present in our lives, healing, teaching, and guiding, we need to set aside time and space to give him our undivided attention. Jesus says, go to your private room, and when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in the secret place. But I think there may be more to the timing of this prayer retreat that Jesus have had than just recharging his batteries after a long night of healing. When he went to pray, it says he found a deserted place. It's the same language that Mark used again earlier in the chapter when he's talking about the temptation of Jesus when he was tempted for that time in the wilderness in a deserted place. So maybe Jesus was being tempted again here and asking the Father to lead him not into temptation. He could have just stayed, continued healing everyone. He was good at that, and it showed his great love for people and his concern for their earthly bodily needs. In fact, we can still ask today these questions. Why doesn't he just keep healing? Why didn't he heal me of this illness or condition? Why doesn't he heal the loved ones I have prayed for constantly? These are good questions we have all likely asked of God before. The temptation could have been for him to keep going because it brought people to him. It worked in a way that can tangibly be measured as success. You can put numbers on how many people he healed and how many people believed because he was healing. It's a, it's a measure of success. But Jesus knew that healing of the body is not all he came to offer people. That couldn't become the whole message. After he goes missing to pray and the disciples find him, they want him to go right on back to that amazing healing work and all the gratitude and the rejoicing that had come out of it. But instead he says, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I might proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came to do. Then he went on to do two things in Galilee, proclaim the message and cast out demons. So you'll notice that he doesn't say anything about healing. The text does tell us that he does more healing after that, but Jesus says that preaching is what he came to do. The healing could have been his whole ministry. It could have been a huge success. He'd never run out of ministering to do because even healed bodies keep getting sick. In fact, they keep getting sick and they eventually die. Even those people he had healed that night in Capernaum eventually died. It's a little taste of Lent for you. Just contemplate our death inevitably. <laughs> a little preview. Um, but that's why Jesus had to reject the temptation to set up his ministry as this miracle clinic. We know that healing bodies and freeing captives and feeding the hungry are all a part of his kingdom come. But that would all just be temporary goodies without him preaching his gospel message of hope. Hope in his defeat of death, forgiveness and freedom from sin, bodily resurrection and life everlasting. This is why he told Satan in the wilderness that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So how does it look when the church proclaims this gospel message? What does our preaching sound like? 
and look like? Like Israelites, do we forget the larger story that God has always been there, always understanding, always pursuing our freedom, and instead preach from a place of anger and bitterness and, and just a grievance about our justice and our rights? Or do we preach to get into powerful, influential places to glorify ourselves? Or do we present the message as a one-stop magic Jesus solution, set up as a clinic to magically cure all your physical and mental and financial woes? So uh, two weeks ago today, my grandmother, Ruth Gray, died. And she preached to me on that day. Uh, she didn't know she was preaching to me. She, um, it didn't happen when I called her on the phone briefly in her hospital room to talk to her for the last time. But that was the Sunday that we were all stuck at home because of the big freeze, and uh, we were having to relive the trauma of online-only church. Uh, so I watched Father Preston on the stream and Deacon Rob um, and then I brought my kids into my room with me when it was over and invited them to share in Eucharist with me. And I had my granny's big Bible. She had just given it to me in October. That was um, the last time I had seen her in person in Florida. And I almost didn't want to take it then. I felt like she should just keep it near her until she was really gone. Um, it's a very old Bible. You know, it's big and... She had had it, had to have it uh, rebound, you know, because the cover was all falling apart, and she had just recently got it all rebound and beautiful. And so I was, uh, you know, I knew, I knew she was dying that day, and I had been reading out of it. I had been reading Psalms that morning just to feel close to her. So when the kids came in, um, I had Elsie read a couple Psalms out of her Bible that she had highlighted. And then I read the deacon's mass from a paper that I just found, happened to find that day, stuffed in the front of her Bible. It had, um, you know, the, the words, the liturgy of the deacon's mass printed out, and it has, like, some other prayers on the back. And it has uh, the number of a deacon, her deacon from her church, and who I assume had, had done this mass with her maybe more than once. Uh, she was very, she was very, very proud when I got ordained a deacon last year, and that's when that happened last summer. She, that's when she called me and told me that she decided that I should have her Bible. So uh, we had Eucharist together, me and the kids, and it was really special. Um, and then just a couple hours later, we we got the call that she was gone, and. She was, she was there with us. She was, uh, it was just me and Elsie and Hendricks and her having communion. And she was ministering to me as she was dying. She was serving us as I served them the elements and just preaching through her life. She was preaching to me. She had a really hard life, uh, harder than I will ever know, but she never gave up her Episcopal faith or her church, her love for the church. She clung to Jesus She with those faded highlighter verses and journals full of names of people that she was holding in prayer, confessions that she was making, praises to him. 
I remember um, I found those prayer journals in her room years ago when I was younger. And I understood something about her that I had no idea about before. She was preaching to me. So I, I want to preach a message of freedom in Christ. I hope I can learn to do it and do it well and do it better and preaching here in a pulpit, literally preaching, and also in the sum of my life when my grandchildren are left with nothing but my things. I know it won't always feel like it's effective by the usual metrics of success or any metrics at all, but we aren't called to be effective or showy. We are just called to proclaim Christ and his kingdom. So I'll leave you with this quote from Father Preston. Let the church hear today. You are free to proclaim and embody freedom. You are healed to proclaim and embody healing. You are saved to proclaim and embody salvation. You are invited to go and share the invitation. If we really are a free people, we ought to live that way. If we really trust our freedom in Christ as the final reality, it calls us to live that way in spite of anything else. Amen.